This is not a definitive history of the rising. We make no judgments. We do not claim to tell the full story. We present for a new generation a story of what happened as the men and women who made history that Easter week describe it themselves. Easter Monday began for Nora Connolly, daughter of the rebel leader James Connolly, with orders to travel to Tyrone in an effort to rise the volunteers in Ulster. Baron McNeil's orders countermanding the mobilisation was to make this impossible. The volunteers who took up arms in Dublin were to be, for the most part, on their own. early on Easter Monday morning that I left Liberty Hall with five other girls from the north to return to Cool Island with dispatches and messages from Pierce and my father. It was hoped that we would reach there before the volunteers were dispersed in answer to McNeil's instructions. When I reached Cool Island, it was to find all the volunteers demobilized. The Belfast contingent sent back to Belfast and the other contingents scattered across Ulster. I was lucky to find the local volunteer officer. I told him that there were no fighting in Dublin, that an Irish Republic had been proclaimed, that we had seen the proclamation, and that we had dispatches from Pierce for the officers commanding. The local officer immediately mobilised his men, I know he kept them under arms for a day and a night, waiting for the orders he expected to come back for them. I have a very vivid memory of being taken after dark to a large barn-like building and seeing the volunteers there sitting and standing about and rifles and haversacks stacked against the wall. I know they stayed there waiting for orders till their officer, fearing their absence would cause comment and arouse suspicion, disbanded them and told them he would have the chapel bell rung as soon as he received orders. But no orders came. Peerish Beasley, Vice Commandant of the 1st Battalion under Ned Daly, was to spend much of the week on Church Street, seeing some of the most sustained and fiercest fighting. The 1st Battalion assembled before noon at the battalion headquarters in Blackhall Street. A little after midday we marched out and took up positions at points stretching from the four courts to Constitution Hill and erected numerous barricades. A portion of F Company, under the command of Lieutenant John Shoulders, was stationed at the intersection of Church Street and North King Street. There was a public house at the corner, closed and shuttered, with the name Riley over the window, which it was decided to occupy. After knocking and getting no answer, the volunteer decided there was nobody there and broke in. A body of lancers, escorting an ammunition wagon, approached along the quays, and volunteers, thinking they were being attacked, fired on them. One lancer galloped up Church Street, firing wildly, and was shot down. The lance of this man was converted by us into a flagpole and planted at the centre of the cross made by Church Street and North King Street. The flag on this pole was not a tricolour, but green with a gold harp, a flag provided by Daly on the orders of the military council, who thought it would have more appeal to the public than the tricolour, 
which was popularly regarded as the Sinn Féin flag. The public house became known as Riley's Fort, and outside on the street fluttered the green flag amid a network of crudely made barricades at which pedestrians seeking to pass were held up and examined. Simon Donnelly was second in command of the 3rd Battalion under Raymond de Valera and was also to be involved in fierce fighting by the middle of the week to come. I went down uh, Grattan Street and entered Bowlands from the rear with my party, which had been about possibly 24 to men or 28 men. Did anyone try to stop you? Oh, no. But when we got into Bowlands... The first few had to climb the gate, take off the bolt to let us in. We went in the back way, and the bakers were working away at the time, turning out bread. We had to turn them out, and some of them first thought it was only manoeuvres and they were going a bit far, till we had to adopt a more aggressive attitude in order to murder the point of the gun. We did allow one or two of them to stay back for a few hours to save what bread was actually in the ovens, that it wouldn't be wasted. Now, after entering the bakery, we had to set about putting in a state of a fortification, putting up some barricades, punching loopholes, first detailing the men, outposts here and there, in case the British would make a surprise attack on us. The first thing was to uh, post men in the vulnerable positions that the British might be likely to attack us, or three to one position. That was the first thing. When you made those emergency measures, then you set other men to uh, barricade in the place, strengthen the gates, fill in a certain amount of sandbags, punching loopholes and walls to which you were going to shoot and all that. Another group, altogether different from the ordinary volunteers or the citizen army, also existed. This was the Kimmage garrison of exiles from Britain who had come over in order to take part in revolutionary activities in Ireland. Michael Collins was among this group, so was Cormac Turner. At O'Connell Bridge we dismounted, and by way of Liberty Hall, the Kimmage garrison divided into various parties, some to the GPO and some to other O'Connell Street posts. But my own particular memory is full of the occupation of Hopkins and Hopkins at O'Connell Bridge, which Seamus Robinson, Seamus Lundy and myself were detailed to occupy. Seamus Robinson was in command of our party, but before that, there was a policeman and a party of lancers. That policeman, on point duty on the bridge, came across the road and down Eden Quay. Seamus guessed he was going to raise the alarm and ordered me to intercept him. It was only when I threatened to run him through with a bayonet that he obeyed my order to halt. Seeing that I meant what I said, he became very apologetic assured me he wasn't going to interfere with me in any way and added that as far as he could see it was a matter for the military to deal with. Without delay he went back to the O'Connell Monument. The party of Lancers approached from the direction of Butt Bridge and when we saw them we thought the game was up. They were escorting stores from the north wall and went by with just a sarcastic glance or two in our direction. We didn't know they were escorting ammunition. They didn't know our immediate business. So on they went towards the forecourts, where they fell into an ambush and heavy casualties. By that time we had occupied the building and were busy putting it into a state of defence. Seamus Robinson told an agitated lady who demanded to get in 
to go away, that the building was occupied by 300 men. The British would attack any minute, and to go away, please, and stay friends. This preposterous 300 figure later made its way into an official British report. But fashionable Dublin was at Ferry House and knew nothing of what had happened. And that night, when a curious, uneasy quietness came to rebel Dublin, not many realised that the day that had come to an end was one of the most important days in Irish history. An Irish Republic had been declared and men were in arms fighting to defend that Republic and the right of Irishmen to conduct their own affairs as an independent people. Tuesday. The Citizen Army, under the command of Countess Martovich, had entrenched themselves on St Stephen's Green. In the early hours of the morning, they came under heavy machine gun fire from the roof of the Shelburne Hotel and had to retreat to the College of Surgeons where Michael Mallon was in command. Paddy Butner was one of those under fire that morning. I got into a hall beside Jimmy O'Shea. He was a great favourite of mine. No fear in him. And I fell asleep in the hall. And it was lovely and warm because of the fact that it was a warm day, but, but it was getting cold at night time. And then the next thing I woke up on the head is the machine gun fire. About five o'clock in the morning. And I, remember, I went to make a door to get out of the hall, and I was shaking on me, she get back, she'll be killed. And he held, well, then I realised, you see, and he kept forwarding up with them. And then we realised the best thing to do was carry on and keep your head. I understand there were men already out there taking over the College of Surgeons before this thing happened. Frank Robbins was one of them. It's a good job they did. Dorsey was shot. He was on the roof and he was shot. We could see him and he lying on the roof and the blood running out of him. We got orders to retreat. The Countess was wonderful. She was going around, you know, just crawling along and giving us orders what to do. Get back, she says. So we got all the guards to retreat back and we retreated back along. Keep close to the railings as you can because of the fact that, well, you'd a better chance that all the bars save a bullet, you know. <laughs> Whereas, and then they couldn't see it too well. So it took us a long time to get up there. It put me in mind the cowboys and Indians when I was a kid, you know, crawling along. So it was agreed to, to evacuate. And they were going over in bunches, you see. And the big fire was being held by the men over, the few men over the roof, and the men from the College of Surgeons. A man by the name of Clark, he was shot on the steps getting into the college. But we got across to this proud's lane, and it was safe getting over there, very easy. And the women, and a lot of girls came with us, and they went on up straight ahead and got out into York Street and got into the College of Surgeons where they let them in there, you see. Wilma came in, that's there. The citizen army was wiped out, and there all the bodies was lying in the in the fish market down there in off Mary Street. You know the fish market mm. there. So Bob asked me to go down. When you go down, he said, "You know where it is." And I did. They're living down there, practically around the case. Go down and see. Do you know any of our fellas? He said. So I went down, and it was easy getting around now. You see, because it wasn't until Wednesday that the people were kept in. Martial law was out, but it wasn't until Wednesday. They got people was getting shot at, you know, and I had to keep him. We were being surrounded. So I went down and I went in and I had a look and there was a, all nearly 30 British soldiers. They were all young, young lads. Some would certainly say, you look young fellas' faces lying there. Their face was clean, neat, you know. 
one fellow mark here, a little hole here. No blood allowed, just a hole. Another fellow with blood here. And there was two men and there was two women. And like the women apparently like had shawls and like if it was been drunk or something like that. You know what I mean? And the men were the same, but there was no one that says in the army, so I got back and I told Bob and he the lawyers had reported in. We couldn't move out after that. Cormac Turner's position on the corner of O'Connell Bridge was under fire that evening. I was dispatched to GPO where I saw James Connolly. I told him we were being troubled by a sniper who was out of range of our weapons and he arranged to send us a citizen army man named Andy Conroy who was reputed to be a good rifle shot. On my return journey I had to run the gauntlet from that sniper on McBurney's and as I entered the door of Hopkins and Hopkins, the bullet intended for me wounded a passerby. And shortly after, as the corporation ambulance removed the victim, a bullet from the same sniper killed a young girl. The 3rd Battalion in Boland's Mills had established outposts in Clan William House and on 25 Northumberland Road. These outposts were to become central to the fighting within hours. But for much of Tuesday, Captain Simon Donnelly had other concerns. There was all sorts of rumours circulating. Fellas were coming to say that the Germans were landing on the Nice Road and other fellas that uh, no other part of the country had risen. And these rumours were having as quite an effect on the men at this outpost. And I issued an order that any strangers coming along, that the men were not to be allowed to speak to them, only to the section commander or officer in charge of the post. I got a request from Clan William House from Second Commander Rellins to send over men and food. Now, the sending over the men was a very ticklish problem because we had none to spare. But I did send them over three extra men and some food. Tom Walsh and his brother Jim were two of the men sent to Clan William House. On Easter Tuesday, my brother Jim and I were sent from Boland's Bakery by Captain Sean McMahon and Captain Simon Donnelly to reinforce the garrison in Clamillium House, overlooking Mount Street Bridge. They told us we were going to a very important post and what was expected of us. We were given 200 extra rounds of ammunition for our hold cones. Jim had also a 32 revolver and I a 45. On arrival at the house, we were admitted by George Reynolds, who was in charge of the output post. The garrison now consisted of Paddy Dial, Jimmy Dial, Dick Murphy, Willie Ronan, Jim and myself. The garrison barricaded the hall door and ground floor windows with heavy furniture. Jim and I were brought upstairs to a room overlooking a considerable area of Lower Mount Street. We placed some furniture in a window, after which I went to the basement and brought up a quantity of coal. While searching for the coal cellar, I found a tailor's dummy and brought it up to the drawing room. We dressed the dummy to represent a human figure and placed it in the front of one of the windows. It was now late in the evening and we were at our respective posts for the night. Mount Street was deserted. The silence was weird. Then away in the distance, the sound of rifle fire, which continued all through the night. Wednesday. By Wednesday morning, the rebels were still in control of much of the city, but the real fighting was about to begin. 
the fisheries protection vessel, the Helga, came up the river and began to shell an empty Liberty Hall. The building was surrounded and raked with machine gun fire. Cormac Turner was still in Hopkins and Hopkins. Machine guns on the roof of Trinity College swept O'Connell Street and turned it into a no-man's land. And in the midst of one prolonged fusillade, I ate my first meal of the day lying flat on the floor. Then we settled accounts with the McBurney sniper. Through a pair of good binoculars procured in Hopkins's, he was located definitely at a central top window. The information was signalled across to the garrison in Kelly's, and Andy Conroy, using our only rifle, the rest of us were armed with shotguns, took steady aim. When the sniper appeared, the word was given, fire. There was a simultaneous volley from Kelly's, and that was that. James Connolly, realising that artillery would soon be in action and that the DBC tower would be a conspicuous mark, sent out a verbal message to evacuate the tower of the DBC. This was misunderstood, or rather distorted, to mean evacuate the block of buildings including the DBC. Seamus Robinson cross-examined the messenger on this strange order but he insisted it was correct. So with the men of the wireless station and DBC, we made our way to Cathedral Street, through Abbey Street and Marlborough Street. There were 10 to 20 in the party, and a few, including Seamus Robinson, successfully crossed the machine gun swept O'Connell Street. To make matters worse, at about the same time, fire was opened on us from the model schools in Marlborough Street. As we had only shotguns, we could make no effective reply. We retired down Cathedral Street with the object of trying to get round by Thomas's Lane. But about halfway down the street, a door opened and a woman called, Come this way. She directed us how to get through to North Earl Street and then suddenly disappeared. I have never succeeded in locating that door or that good Samaritan. I was then posted to the Imperial Hotel, where I remained till the end. Simon Donnelly's men were now directly involved in the fighting, first at 25 Northumberland Road. Michael Malone, or Lieutenant Malone, as far as I remember, he was a, and with a Peter the Painter revolver, German Mauser pistol, that you put on a little wooden stock and make a little rifle out of it. But he inflicted heavy catches on him, the British himself on Grace, but eventually, uh, superiority of numbers and equipment, they burst into the house, and as Malone was coming down the stairs, according to my information, he was riddled. Grace afterwards uh, escaped through the back of the house. Now, this is the force of our position to fall, 25 Northumberland Road. How long did Lieutenant Malone hold out? He couldn't have held out more than a an hour or so. As long as that, did he? Well, he would have because uh, it was difficult to get up to get up to his hall door. You had to climb up uh, granite steps. Do you see? What the case of bursting in the door and getting up to it under cover of a machine gun? But they—that's the eventually the way they got up to it. You see, they kept the machine gun going on, and let, allowed their armaments to get up to the door and burst it in. 
They were taken completely by surprise when he opened fire on them, of course, they scattered and had to be reassembled by their officers. Do you see, because we're told, I don't know now, that these troops were sent over here were mostly conscripts who were only going through their training in England. They weren't seasoned soldiers, a lot of them. The officers were, but not the, the men they sent over. Now, when the, the British had overcome Malone's uh, post of 24 now, and they advanced on the bridge, well, when they come in close range, uh, relatives' garrison opened up rapid fire and inflicted very heavy casualties. They had only a few uh, Lee-Enfield rifles. They had, I think, one or two Holt rifles and a number of revolvers. Well, now, the uh, volunteers in Clan William House had no machine gun, of course. Oh, no, no, none of us. They had none nothing but these, the, the whole, these the whole, uh, primitive guns. The whole group of insurgents in all positions didn't possess a machine gun. The Walsh brothers, Tom and Jim, were in Clan William House with a commanding view of Mount Street Bridge. In the drawing room, there were three windows overlooking the bridge. If you stood on the stairs looking from this level, you would be looking through the drawing room door and one window onto the bridge and along Northumberland Road. This window was held by Paddy Gile, the centre window by George Reynolds and the other by Dick Murphy. The dummy, acting as a decoy, was placed in a conspicuous position. In the room directly overhead, the windows were manned by Jimmy Dial and Willie Ronan. Jim and I were posted at two bike drawing room windows, overlooking a portion of Wellington Place and Percy Place across the canal. About noon, I saw a British officer rushing from Percy Lane along Percy Place and up the steps of a house. I fired for the first time from my hold gun, and for that matter, from any other rifle. In the excitement, I did not hold the weapon correctly. The bullet hit me under the chin and knocked me unconscious, for I don't know how long. When I came to, I discovered that a large piece of the granite windowsill had vanished. From that on, I fired again and again towards the enemy in Percy Place until the rifle became so heated it was impossible to hold it. Jim was blazing away overhead and I went up to see how he was doing. When I came down there were three bullet holes in the window frame where my head would have been had I not gone upstairs. There was no terrific firing from the front of the house. Jim and I rushed to the middle window of the drawing room. There were great confusion among the enemy. There were being attacked from 25 Northumberland Road, which was manned by Lieutenant Mike Malone and Jimmy Grace. Those who managed to get past number 25 took cover as they ran toward the bridge, sheltering behind trees, even crouching in the channels of the roadway. We kept blazing away, and as one attacker was killed or wounded, another moved up in those deadly channels and passed his dead or wounded comrade. This gave me the impression of a giant human khaki-coloured caterpillar. Under cover of the bridge, groups of the enemy, led by officers from Northumberland Road and Percy Place, tried to cross the bridge. They charged in an extended order of about eight to twelve men, but in vain. Again and again, this mad attempt was made until the bridge was heaped with dead and wounded. 
Civilians led by a clergyman rushed onto the bridge. Two gales ran under the crossfire and carried away the wounded. The fooling from both sides ceased until the rescuers withdrew. Paddy Doyle suddenly stopped speaking to us and fell dead beside Jim and myself, shot through the head. The armchair I was leaning on was now on fire and Jim passed me a soda water siphon to squirt on it but it was shattered to pieces in my hand by a bullet. I turned towards Dick Morphy to say a few words, but he too was dead. The stairs leading from the drawing room level to the upper portion of the house were practically shot away. I was going up the stairs to Willie Rowland and Jimmy Dial when a bullet hit one of the water pipes and a jet of water hit me in the face. The house at nightfall, after eight hours continuous fighting, was riddled and fires had broken out around us. The terrific enemy volleys were intense and it was almost impossible to find cover anywhere. Our ammunition was nearly exhausted. We were almost suffocated by the fumes from the smouldering furniture. George Reynolds then gave the order to evacuate the post. He stood on the landing and emptied the last rounds from his revolver into the advancing enemy. As he turned to leave, an enemy bullet found its mark, and another Irishman had made the supreme sacrifice. He knelt and said an act of contrition for George, Dick and Paddy. Through the flames and stifling fumes, with the shouts of the advancing enemy in our ears, we four survivors made our way to the basement. Jimmy Dial, Winnie Rowland, my brother Jim and myself burst open a small window in the back door and made our way across the garden walls of Lower Mount Street. The men who fought on Mount Street Bridge, like those in Riley's Fort later in the week, were to become iconic figures for Republicans. Desmond Ryan, who was in the GPO, and who became the historian of the Rising, wrote later about inspired madness. There is a monument in honour of these volunteers near the bridge today, and of the 13 who fought that day, at least half survived, with that strange nightmare of carnage and glory in their minds. The British column did not attempt to cross Mount Street Bridge that night, nor resume their march into Dublin. The column was reinforced by another regiment. Volunteer snipers were still at work near the bridge at a late hour that evening. The flames roared high above Clan William House, the only definite news to both friends and foes that one of the most amazing battles of the week had finished. Thursday. That morning, Nora Connolly and her sister, Ina, decided to leave Tyrone and make their way back to Dublin. I was hampered by wearing my uniform under my heavy skirt and heavy shoes, which I had chosen as I expected all my activities would be in the country, and by carrying a large suitcase which contained mainly first aid supplies. The revolver and box of ammunition which my father had given me when we said goodbye at Liberty Hall waited in my pocket. It was a long, lonely road I don't remember meeting more than a couple of old men on it. I had no cheering thoughts to help me as I trudged along. 
Mentally, I was very depressed. The disappointments I had met and the feeling that I had failed in the task given went step by every step with me. Physically, I was very tired. I hadn't slept a good sleep since Good Friday, and even that had been a short one. The night before my arrival had brought a raid on the house, and there was no sleep after they had come and gone. Simon Donnelly's men in Boland's Mills were coming under sniper and artillery fire. I went over to a house at the corner of Grattan Street on the orders of the common to see if we could dislodge some of these snipers. We went up to a top room. We were first going to get out on the, the roof. There was a burst of machine gun fire and the chimney pot come crashing down around our head. We had to give up that and we went into a wind in the top room. And one of the lads with me had a uniform and I remember it well, he's since dead. He had brass buttons on it and the sun was shining on this window and apparently the, they got the glare of the sun and the sniper got him immediately. They were a very bad wound in the leg. So we had to send back then to Bolands. We had to get him across the road under fire, back to Bolands, and then get him shifted off to hospital. The commandant sent him on, the Captain Cullen, up to the distillery tower to put up a flag and also to send out semaphore signals, fictitious signals. This was a view to withdraw the enemy fire because by this time the enemy had brought into play a naval gun that they had brought up, mounted on a lorry. Now when these semaphore signals started to go out from this tower on the distillery, the naval gun opened up on it. Yeah. But what happened was, from my recollection, that some of the shots or shells from the naval gun went over this building and went over into the Liffey, where the Helga was implied shell in Liberty Hall. And I think that the officer in charge of the Helga appears to have uh, thought that we were shelling him and he sent back some in the other direction. But one of those naval shells did actually fall into the bakery, but it did no harm. During all this excitement and tension, a volunteer was accidentally killed by one of our own men and he was buried in the bakery. How did that happen? Macken. I, I don't know any the full circumstances of it, but I think uh, during the darkness or some time, I think a sentry challenged him and he didn't answer or something like that. There's something on that line that happened. And the but he was shot. He was a the late Padam Macken, who was a county or city councillor here one time. He was buried in the bakery because it was afterwards reinterred. But while the British occupied Mount Street now, they made no effort to uh, carry out any attack or assault on our position. As Simon Donnelly had begun to suspect, the main British forces were now concentrating their attacks on the GPO and on the forecourts. Cormac Turner was still in the Imperial Hotel. The GPO was being shelled. The east side of O'Connell Street was burning fiercely. The fire had now spread to the Sackville Place end of our block of buildings and was steadily advancing northwards. The fire brigade had been withdrawn and our efforts to control the flames were fruitless. As we waited on our last night in the doomed building for the moment 
when the advancing flames would compel us to evacuate, we heard above the roar of artillery and the rattle of machine gun from the GPO across the street, proudly and defiantly, the stirring strains of a soldier's song. Dr Jim Ryan was a medical student of 23. On Tuesday he arrived at the General Post Office and began to set up an emergency hospital. By Thursday, this hospital was well established. I think the first uh, person that came into me that morning was James Connolly, who had a slight wound in the upper arm, a slight bullet wound, which I attended to for him. Was there much activity that morning? Yes, there was a fair amount, you know, but uh, there was a, a great deal of sniping. But uh, I don't think there was anything else except sniping. Uh, we hadn't uh, we hadn't heard the big, as far as I remember, we hadn't heard the big guns at that stage. How many people were in the GPO on the Thursday, approximately? Well, I always thought it was about 120, but I saw numbers given since that were much higher than that. I don't know. Now, Connolly's first wound was of a fairly minor nature. It was, yeah. uh, When when was he wounded again? Uh, In the afternoon, in the early afternoon, he was carried in by three or four men and laid on on a stretcher. And uh, he had a very serious wound. The next time, his ankle was shattered. Uh, It's hard to say. At the time, I I thought it might have been done, probably was done by uh, a rifle bullet, but it, would, it must have been at fairly close range because it badly shattered. What time on Thursday was he wounded? I think it was early afternoon, probably about between three and four, I think. Pierce uh, took no part in actually directing operations no, in the general no, post office? No, not in the direct operations, no, no. He, no. Tr- he, tried he, he did, of course, speak to the men from time to time on the general question, giving them a... Um, uh, a, 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 an uplift on the on the morals, uh, morale side, if you like, but that was uh, more or less political speeches. Yeah, uh, but, well, uh, well uh, appealing to them, yes, to do their part for Ireland and so on. Yeah, uh, Doctor Ryan, what kind of a patient was Connolly? Well, Connolly was an extremely good patient. He was a most patient man, if you like. Uh, didn't appear to, uh, didn't appear to. Suffer. I mean, it didn't, didn't appear to give in, let us say, to his sorrow. He must have suffered terribly, but he never complained. He was very good that way. And, of course, I was a very young man that time, he was really 23, but he left himself completely in my hands. Whatever I said, he, he agreed. Except, of course, he didn't agree to relinquish the command. Liam O'Brien was in the College of Surgeons, where the fighting was now minimal. But from the roof of the college, he could see the north side ablaze. Now, that... Uh that Thursday night just went on like that the whole evening, this tremendous blazing from the north side. Out in front there was nothing, no people moving around, no people had been seen for days back, uh, but there was one thing moving up and down the streets, there was a horse. There was a horse which had broken out from some stable somewhere and with harness attached to him which was dragging along the pavement. And this poor horse was moving up and down Stephen's Green, clattering along the, the cobblestones, making a tremendous noise, not knowing where he was going. He'd go along somewhere, disappear, and then you'd hear him coming back again. It was weird, really. That horse has haunted me ever since. And that was a, a terrible sight because uh, it gave me at least the impression as if we had brought destruction on the city. And for the very first time, I began almost to think about the whole thing and ask, had, had we, had we, were we destroying the city and maybe destroying the country? Friday. Early that morning, Simon Donnelly got an order from Comet and De Valera that was to puzzle him for the rest of his life. 
By that stage, the rebel garrisons were isolated from each other, and it was the first time the men of Boland's Mills had any sense of the destruction that was taking place in the city. I got an order from the commandant to evacuate the bakery and take my men up onto the, the railway. I done so, although I didn't see the reason of it, it was my brought my men up on the railway on Friday night. And this was the first time the men had seen the, the centre of the city in flames. You could see the fires. They seen it had a very bad demoralising effect. The huge mass of the red sky and the buildings, the red reflex are way off, you know. We knew it had to be the centre of the city. Because we weren't so far from it, you know, looking at it, direct at it. But it was very unnerving to the men. And so much so that one poor fella lost his head. And he pulled out a little revolver and shot a chap beside him. Not seriously, but realising that he had lost his head, I had no alternative but to knock out the poor fellow with the butt of my revolver to save other men because he could have went for rest altogether and done a lot of damage. Uh, when we were out on the railway for some time and the things were all in a state of turmoil, the company gave me an order to... Uh, Reoccupy the bakery. Why? I can't say the idea. The only thing that I was worried about was that uh, for the short time we were out of it, the British could have occupied it, could have sneaked in. And before I brought back my men into it, I sent in a few fellas to have a look around to see that things were all right before we reoccupied it. But we reoccupied it. Now, I don't know whether the com I think the common might have had ideas in getting us out there on the railway. They were going to... Uh, make an attack in some other direction or something. Must have been something like that was in his mind because there's no other reason because the, the British are, the bakery wasn't threatened. Nora Connolly and her sister had got as far as Dundalk. There were no trains, there were army checkpoints everywhere, but the Connollys were resourceful. So it was walking again and we started off to walk to Dublin from Dundalk. We decided that we wouldn't carry the suitcase. It might attract attention. I sent Diane into a stationist to buy brown paper and twine. We went into a restaurant, and in the ladies' room made four parcels and left the suitcase behind. No, we only looked as if he had been shopping. There was a military barricade not far from the restaurant, and another before we left the town. Two girls with their shopping aroused no suspicion in the minds of the soldiers and we passed through without question. We kept up a steady walk until it began to grow dark. Suddenly, at a turn in the road, we came upon another military post. We were too near it to stop to decide what we should do, so we walked on. Ina, who was much younger and much gayer than I, bantered with the soldiers as we neared the narrow space left for pedestrians and kept it up as we went walking through and passed on, as if barricades were nothing in our young lives. Riley's fort was now under constant fire. Pierish Beasley was still on Church Street. Things were going badly for the British soldiers. They first took up a position behind an unoccupied barricade on the east side of North King Street. But a withering fire from Riley's fort killed some of them and caused the others to fly in confusion. They took refuge in Beresford Street, where they unwittingly came under a crossfire 
from our posts on the east side of Church Street, and more of them fell. Lieutenant Shoulders and his men in Riley's Fort dashed out and seized the rifles which the soldiers had dropped. At an early stage of the fight, one of the garrison of Riley's Fort, Patigo Flanagan, was killed. This was their only casualty, but they inflicted heavy loss on the enemy. Every few yards in the street, from top to bottom, were barricades made of any material that came to hand. Although it was night, the street was lit up as brightly as noonday by the fires burning in the O'Connell Street area. Occasionally, the ping of a Lienfield bullet by my ear told me that a sniper had missed his mark. I could not see what to do to relieve the pressure on King Street without dangerously weakening our line elsewhere. Our men in Brunswick Street were completely cut off from us, and I could send them no orders. I spent the night at the barricade above the church, praying that a gallant band in Riley's Fort would be able to hold out. By late afternoon, the GPO had become untenable. An attempt was made to break out into Moor Street. Of the 30 men in that sortie, 21 died in the alley of fire that the British had turned Moor Street into. An eventual successful breakout was led by Sean McLaughlin, who had been given a field commission as commandant by Conley. McLaughlin was then little more than a teenager. Dr Jim Ryan was part of that breakout. We, we went from the post office door uh, in Henry City, right across into Henry Place and around into Moor Lane. Uh, and uh, having got into Moor Street houses, then we began breaking through from house to house. Everybody got across Henry Street safely. Crossing Moor Lane was, was the real danger point. From uh, getting into the opposite uh, courtyard where, where they all entered and into more, the Moor Street houses. Well, now, who was in charge at this stage? Obviously, Connolly couldn't have been. Well, was uh, uh, I'm not too clear on that because I, I was nearly the last leaving the post office as we had a casualty. Uh, a person dropped a hand grenade accidentally and it wounded four men. And I was delayed while I was uh, tending to their wounds and getting people to carry them off. Uh, but when I arrived, or shortly after I arrived in, in, in Henry, Henry Place, a young man called McLaughlin took control. I hadn't seen him before. He got us all to fall in, see, into proper order because we were more or less in groups and all making suggestions of what we should do and so on. And uh, he got us into order and then he proceeded to get barricades erected and that sort of thing. But gradually the men filtered through anyway into the back of Moore Street and into the houses along the right-hand side of Moore Street going up. Now, where was Pierce at this stage? Well, Pierce was with, the, with us at that stage, of course. Pierce must have been the last to leave because he stood at the door as we went out and he dropped his sword now and again for two men to run across and then two more and then two more. And uh, he remained there, certainly remained there, was there when I came out and there were very few after me coming out. Getting across this Moor Lane, as is, uh, which is uh, going from Henry Place down to Moor Street, was a real danger point because... The machine guns appeared to be uh, playing on it all the time. And uh, when I got across into a little courtyard opposite, I found 16 men actually on the ground, of course there's no place else to go, lying, on the, uh, lying in this little courtyard, waiting to have their wounds dressed. Friday was to be the last full day of the insurrection for the GPO garrison. 
Through the night, spasmodic firing went on in parts of the city. The British were moving in heavily on all sides. Saturday. O'Connell Street had been reduced to rubble. The Connollys, unaware of this, had got to Balbriggan. On again. My feet were burning. Behind hedges were newly ploughed fields. They looked so cool and inviting that we slipped inside the first gap we found. I took off my shoes and stockings and plunged my feet into the cool earth. It was so quiet, so cool and restful that I must have dozed off, for I wakened suddenly to the sound of the booming of big guns. We looked at each other in horror. Dublin, I said. I pulled on my shoes and stockings. We were out on the road, face towards Dublin again. After some time, a motor car pulled up and offered us a lift. He could take us as far as swords. Thankfully, we accepted. Here and there along the road, we saw the telegraph wires were down, and our good Samaritan carefully noted each police to inform the authorities. He drew up near the police barracks, and there we thanked and left him. I think it was near Santry that we were horrified to meet a column of British soldiers with a gun carriage and camp kitchens. They're leaving Dublin, I said, leaving Dublin. Can that mean we are beaten? At practically every door in Whitehall and Drumcondra, men and women were standing. There was a horrible smell of burning, very like water spilled on hot ashes. No one seemed to be speaking to each other. Those who were walking towards us stopped every now and then to look back towards the city. Everything was very quiet. The sharp snap of a rifle now and then seemed extraordinarily loud. We went to a friend's house in Clonliffe Road. Two of the girls were at the door. They looked at us and we looked at them. We were pulled inside and one said in a voice full of rage, they're all dead and slaughtered. The few not dead are prisoners. She battered us with words. When she fell quiet, I asked, My father. Some say he's dead. Some say he's wounded. Some say he's a prisoner. I could only look at her. That's all the news we can get about anyone. Number 16 Moore Street, Handlin's Fish Shop, the final headquarters of the broken army of the Irish Republic was established. Here, the last meeting of the provisional government took place. A decision was taken, following a certain amount of discussion, to order a ceasefire and to seek an arrangement with the British military commander. Commandant McLaughlin, on the instructions of Pierce, issued the order for an hour ceasefire. A plan of McLaughlin's to fight through from Moore Street was supported by Pierce, but the majority present opposed it. The British were quite surprised when Elizabeth O'Farrell, a young Red Cross nurse with the Republicans, approached a barricade under the protection of a white flag and told the man in command that Patrick Pierce 
wished to have talks with the British military commander. This request was curtly refused, and she was told to inform the insurgent leader that unconditional surrender only would be accepted, and that James Connolly would have to be brought along on a stretcher when Pierce gave himself up. Pierce returned to the British side of the barricades at the top of Moore Street with Elizabeth O'Farrell, and at half past two surrendered to General Lowe. At 3.45 he issued a statement. In order to prevent the further slaughter of Dublin citizens, and in the hope of saving the lives of our followers now surrounded and hopelessly outnumbered, the members of the provisional government present at headquarters have agreed to an unconditional surrender, and the commandants of the various districts in the city and county will order their commands to lay down arms. P. H. Pierce, 29th of April, 1916, 3.45 p.m. Dr. Jim Ryan was one of those in the Moore Street area. Yeah, of course, I saw James Connolly a few times on Friday night and again on Saturday morning, but I think it was about noon. Uh, somebody told me Connolly wanted to see me again, and I went along and... Uh, he told me that he once he's wound, dressed, and uh, there was a man shaving him. And he seemed to be preparing himself very carefully. So then he told me, he said, I'm going to the castle. Now, I was rather surprised, but he didn't say any more, but I was dressing his wound. But when the others went away, he began t talking to me very freely that Pierce had gone to the castle to arrange a surrender and had sent for him. And he was being brought there to... Uh, to, to confer with Pierce about the surrender. I, I, I said to him probably, what's going to happen? Well, he said, we'll be all shot, but he'll go free. Among those who surrendered from the Moore Street group of insurgents was Desmond Ryan, who later became the historian of Easter Week. He recalled the surrender as he and his comrades came into Sackville Street. As we lined up in front of the Gresham Hotel and watched the volunteers from the other positions marching in on the white flags, with smouldering ruins and long lines of British soldiers for background, while Red Cross wagons glided past us as silently as ghosts. Right across the street from us came the men of the Four Courts garrison, with Edward Daly, Pierce Beasley, and others of their officers at the head. And Desmond Ryan's namesake, Jim Ryan, the medical officer of the Republican forces at the General Post Office, was also a prisoner. Well, we were lined up uh, and... My recollection is that we were moving through a country at about 12 and uh, I saw the flag flying over the post office still the soldiers trying to get it down but they hadn't succeeded in getting it down the tricolour. Were there people in the streets? None in that part when we came along to the side streets uh, we got along beyond Dame Street and then on to Thomas Street and along there they were all in the side streets. Was there any reaction from them doctor? They were most unfriendly <laughs> How did they manifest this? By encouraging the guards to finish us off in, well, there and then. <laughs> but uh, I think there were mostly, of course, people that had relatives in the war. Uh, where did you go to? We went to Richmond Barracks, which is now Kew Barracks. The detectives were there, and also the prisoners we had in the post office, the officers, uh, pointing out those who were in control and that sort of thing. And uh, the detectives were picking out certain men, bringing them away in, when they had picked out all their men that they thought were important, the rest of us got a tin of bully beef and a biscuit and marched onto the North Wall. As some of us were marched off from Richmond Barracks on the Sunday night to the North Wall along the Keys, 
we passed the abandoned barricades of the forecourt's men, deserted cars and tumbled planks, and here and there some smouldering ruins where they had fought. And in Stafford barracks there were forecourt's garrison men who told the thrilling tale of how their fight had not ended with Daly's formal surrender, of which they were unconvinced until an order was brought to them signed by Pierce on Sunday morning. Fifty-eight volunteers behind the North Brunswick Street barricade and cut off from the main forecourt's body and the Church Street men refused to surrender until this order arrived. And those who told us of that last episode in the forecourt's story laughed as they remembered how their leader had said as he finally surrendered to a dumbfounded British officer. We only expect the treatment of the men of 98. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.